Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome. You've got the A teenage couple are driving down the road. Maybe they're coming from a party. Maybe they're coming from the prom. Maybe she's wearing a yellow dress. Maybe it's blue. I can't quite remember. In every telling, it changes. They're listening to the radio and They're flipping through the channels. Oh, here's a lovely song, but it's not quite lovely enough. So they flip the channel again, and the news is on. And on the news, they hear that, oh no, an escaped mental patient, homicidal maniac, has fled from the institution and is on the loose. He is described as being six feet tall, wearing a long patient's gown, and has a hook in place of his right hand. The patient is known to be violent and should be... A hook for a hand? That sounds terrible. But this is no concern of ours. We're simply driving along the road, having a lovely date in my beautiful pink chiffon dress. The car comes to a stop. They either run out of gas, or perhaps the tire pops, or perhaps they just pull over to the side of the road for a bit of youthful canoodling. Usually there's something wrong with the car, because the boyfriend has to go get help. Either go walk down the road to the gas station and get some gas, or walk to try and get a phone to call and get a tire change. And he tells the girlfriend, here, just wait in the car, I'll be back soon, we'll get the car up and running, things will be fine. She sits in the car and she waits. And she waits. And she waits. And she waits. Meanwhile... There's this scratching on the roof, sort of the sound of, like, branches of a tree scratching, scratching, scratching on the roof of the car. And eventually, she wonders where her boyfriend is, so she gets out to go looking for him. And when she turns around, she sees that the scratching on the roof was not a branch at all, but it was the tip of her boyfriend's nice, shiny dress shoes. Scratch, scratch, scratching along the roof of the car as he has been hung from the tree above his head. There is left just a single hook lodged in the handle of the door. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter. And I'm Mason Amadeus. On today's episode, urban legends, ghost tours, and legend tripping. Content warnings for this episode include claustrophobia and a story involving racially motivated violence in the 1940s. Details are in the show notes on how to avoid these sections. This is Digital Folklore. What the? Hello? The moon's crescent path drags low across the sky. Dreams harvest, pulled out by the roots. Overturned, the radiant soil of a new day. Harry. Fertile on the cusp of the horizon. Harry. Untold. Harry, why are you like this? What are you doing? Can it wait like a couple hours, dude? It's like four in the morning. Don't ignore the call of adventure, Mason. What adventure? Just come downstairs. I don't want to. Five minutes, or I'll start throwing rocks again. Fine, fine. I'll write it down. Oh, 
Harry, what is what is this? Get in, loser. We're going legend tripping. You rented a panel van? No, I bought a panel van. Oh. We're going to get it painted. It's going to be our podcast van, and I'm going to call it the Folk Mobile. I, I don't think that's a good name. The vans are rocking. The spirits are knocking. Okay, yeah, no. You see, you know why it's not a good Wait, name. Wait, maybe we call it the Volkswagen. I went to sleep almost literally three hours ago. These episodes take forever to edit. Well, if you were more organized, I bet you could get through them faster. It's not that hard. Thanks. I hadn't thought of that. No problem. What what are, what are we doing? You said we're going legend tripping? Yeah, legend tripping. Today is a field trip day. Every day. every All of these have been field trip days. We're going to the graveside of Elijah Bond. I don't know who that is. He's the guy that invented the Ouija port. I thought that was William Fold. That's the guy whose name was on all the boxes. No, William didn't really invent it. He's the one that took over the company and marketed the final version. But Elijah was the one that first created it and patented it and started the company originally. Okay, whatever, sure. But why are we going to his grave? Is there like an urban legend that he died in a suspicious Ouija board accident or something? Well, no, but funny enough, actually, William did. A railing gave out and he fell off the roof of one of his own factories and died. Oh, yeah. Ouch. Painful. Died. Um, No, but we're going to Elijah's grave instead because his tombstone has a Ouija board on it. And I thought it would be fun to take some pictures out there for the podcast. You know, PR stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I bought costumes and props and a whole box of stuff back there. I think it'd be cool. Isn't that kind of make the whole legend tripping bit feel a little disingenuous, though? No, I mean, we're going to be in a cemetery in the middle of the night playing with this somewhat legendary Ouija board gravestone. Middle of the... Did you say middle of the night, Perry? How far away is this? That's just like 15 hours. It's nothing. 15 hours. Great. Just wrap your head around it. I got beef jerky. Cool. And other fragrant snacks. Corn nuts. Some some Fritos. Um, Got some bean dip. Great. You ever done a legend trip before? No, I don't. Well, actually, actually, yeah, kind of. I, I didn't know that's what it would be called at the time, but um, have you ever heard of the Hoosack Tunnel in Massachusetts? Is that hollowed out by John Cusack? <laughs> no, no. It, it was on an episode of Ghost Adventures, um, and my friend Caitlin was obsessed with that show, and so we watched it, and it's... I was living in southern New Hampshire at the time, so it was like a little quick road trip to zip down to North Adams, Mass, and see if we could find it. It was a... Wicked Haunted Tunnel. This was like somehow 10 years, over 10 years ago. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. I remember it was really hard to find it because it's not the kind of thing that was actually open to the public to go walking around in. Cool. So what's what's the story? I mean, normally I might not be that interested, but we do have 15 hours. Yeah. It's, it's, actually, it's pretty interesting. The Hoosack Tunnel is an almost five mile long railroad tunnel that barrels its way through the base of the Hoosack Mountain in Massachusetts. Five miles might not seem like a lot, but it was constructed in the mid-1800s, and every inch of it was grueling in new and exciting ways. The Hoosack Mountain was, on one side, rich with hard materials like quartz that would break drills and be almost impossible to blast through. And on the other side, composed mostly of what workers called porridge stone, which was crumbly, wet, and prone to collapse. You'd take a shovelful out, turn around, and it would have filled itself back in. 
The original plan was to dig the whole tunnel in just over four years using Wilson's patented stone-cutting machine, a phenomenally expensive technological marvel designed to chew through mountains at an unparalleled rate. But it broke after digging almost exactly 12 feet. So then, it was back to shovels, drills, and dynamite. Did they ever finish it? The tunnel? Oh yeah, they finished it 22 years after they started. 22 years? Yeah, they started in 1851 and didn't finish until 1873. Over the course of construction, almost 200 people lost their lives in gruesome accidents, and the Hoosac Tunnel earned the nickname the Bloody Pit. Explosions, falling rock, scaffolding collapses, conditions were so dangerous that workers went on strike in 1865 and burned down buildings in protest. But the worst accident on record was an explosion in the central shaft. The central shaft is a 1,000-foot vertical shaft bored straight down from the top of the mountain to create an exhaust for the train tunnel below. On October 17th of 1867, workers were lowered into the shaft to continue digging their way straight down. They were working by candle and gaslight to the thrumming sound of distant pumps siphoning water from the oversaturated porridge stone lining the dig. A candle in the hoist building above ignited fumes that had leaked from a gas lamp. The explosion erupted outwards, destroying the pumps that were desperately working to keep groundwater from flooding the shaft as the men dug and catching the entire hoist mechanism on fire. Four workers near the top of the shaft managed to scramble to safety, but there was no time to evacuate the 13 men working nearly 600 feet down before the whole building collapsed in a shower of jagged debris and flaming naphtha. They were trapped in a narrow stone pit, water seeping slowly from the walls around them and pooling gently around their feet. The only light, the flickering, flaming wreckage, marking their one impossible exit. Did anyone go in after them? They did. A worker was lowered into the shaft to search for survivors, but he returned to the surface nearly unconscious because there wasn't enough oxygen. He said there was no hope of anyone surviving and no further rescue attempts were made. The central shaft was abandoned and all work ceased for almost a year to the day when workers returned, reached the bottom and made a heartbreaking discovery. Among the bodies of the trapped miners, was a makeshift raft. Several of the victims of that accident had indeed survived. They survived just long enough to try and stay above the slowly encroaching water before they too were overcome by asphyxiation. Wow. Yeah, really grim stuff. So no doubt then that there are probably a lot of ghost stories and local legends around a place like that. Yeah, a lot of them. Probably the most famous one is the haunting of Ringo Kelly. And his death was one that may not have been an accident. The story goes that he was part of an explosives team with two other workers 
and accidentally discharged an explosive early before his coworkers were at a safe distance. And they both died, buried alive under tons of rock. Soon after the accident, Ringo Kelly disappeared. He wasn't seen again until 10 days later when his body was discovered two miles into the tunnel in the exact spot his coworkers had died. He had been strangled to death. An investigation was carried out, but the murder was never solved. There weren't even any suspects. But some of the tunnel workers came to their own conclusion that Kelly had been killed by the vengeful spirits of his two colleagues. Rumors started spreading that the tunnel was cursed and some even refused to enter it. People would report hearing pained moans or desperate wailing echoing down the tunnel's damp walls at night. Some say they even saw dim lights like work lamps bobbing towards them. Other stories go even farther, claiming full body apparitions or disembodied voices. There are loads of them. And I assume that that's what you went there to see? Oh yeah, of course. And did you? Well, we did see a, a couple scary things, but not, not what we expected. What happened? The tunnel itself is hard to find. Like I said, it's not exactly a walking park. And the entrance was this little overgrown dirt path that we barely fit the car down. But we did get to the opening of the tunnel and we did go inside of it. But we didn't get far before we heard a faint, low rumbling echoing down the tunnel. We felt the ground start to tremble and we saw not an apparition, not a bobbing light, not a ghost at all, but something that none of us were ready for. A train. Oh. Yep, turns out it's still an active railway, or at least it was at the time, so we absolutely sprinted out of there. I mean, luckily the train was one of those wicked long ones and it had slowed way down on the way through the tunnel, or else we probably would have died. Yep, that would have been a scary experience. Yeah. I mean, there's no way we could outrun a full-speed train. But other than that, it was pretty cool. And it was definitely a legend trip. Yeah. And, you know, teenagers driving out to involve themselves in local urban legends, that's a real pastime. It's a rite of passage. It's going through these liminal spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what I haven't done in a long time? What's that? I haven't listened to the radio in forever. I brought Why a ton we... of podcasts, too. I would rather... And I, I'm feeling the radio. I, you know, it's been a long time. And maybe... You, let's, let's just give it a shot. Come on. Introducing CheapBumpers.biz. Why take so many pills when you can just take one pill? Insurance premiums are expensive. Hey, listeners. If you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. 
As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Yeah, I think I remember why I don't listen to the radio anymore. It's like all, it's just ads, nonstop ads. Just band shift. AM is where it's at. AM radio? Yeah, especially these weird times of the morning. There's probably something strange on there. Yeah, why not? And I think my dad is a moon man. And the moon men are these race beings that are trying to come to Earth, clean our water supply, turn it into this beautiful geometric pattern, and take over the world. It's going to be rad. <laughs> fascinating. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you for taking the time to share your story with us. You know, I just think it's very important that we... Again, this is Most to Ghost AM. I'm your host, Bart Chime. And as we round the top of the hour, I have another caller patiently holding on the line who has some more fascinating stories to share with us. Hello, caller. Welcome to Most to Ghost. What's your name and what do you do? I'm... Mark Muncy. I am the author of the best-selling Erie, Florida book series from History Press. I also have written recently Erie Appalachia. I've been on numerous TV shows, documentaries, mostly famous for about a minute and 30 seconds of Ancient Aliens and about three and a half minutes of Finding Bigfoot. Excellent. That's great. Hey, thanks for calling in, Mark. I'm curious, though, as, as someone who's made a profession out of investigating the paranormal, how'd you get started? What sent you down that path? I was six or seven years old. Uh, My family grew up in uh, Midwest, Ohio, but our home was Kentucky. And uh, so we would go to this little rural farm on the West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio border. Grew up there, going there weekends and learning about the local lore and ghost stories and the local monster, which was the dumbest thing ever. It was this legendary beast with the head of a man, the body of a cow or a big cat, and a wooden leg, because nobody can have nice things, we called it the bench leg. You know, the bench leg of Gobel Ridge. I know it sounds like something out of South Park, right? And he would jump from tree to tree, so this cow thing would jump from tree to tree, 
If you were a bad person, it would knock you off your horse with its wooden leg. As I grew up, every single family member had some story of when they saw the thing or something weird had happened with it. And then one day I'm out in the woods late at night. The family is up at the big trailer and I'm down looking for stars and something unusual happened. One of the horses in the field ran by, something spooked it, and then the other horse ran by, and I'm like, okay, so that's both horses. And then I hear more hoofs and more noise, and I'm like, what is going on? There's nobody else here. And and I saw this strange thing. I'm not going to say it had a wooden leg, but it had a weird head. So you saw a thing with a weird head that scared your horses, and that started you down this lifelong path of investigating the paranormal. Is that what you're saying? I don't know what I saw. I can't explain it, but I had a story to tell, and that drew me in. And of course, from there led to the lifelong fascination. Okay. But the bench leg, I found the origin story, which I had never known. And it was a man walking along that ridge in the late 1700s, early 1800s, so early days of Kentucky. And he was a panhandler. He was like a tinker, fix your pans, fix your plates, sell stuff and trade you stuff. Well, a group of bandits decided to rob him because they figured he'd have some money. He fought back with a big stick, and they murdered him. And then to hide the crime, they killed his cow and buried him under the cow. And so thus, this spirit of vengeance with the mix of the cow, the wooden stick, and the man's head, you know, is that the origin story of this. It's definitely the comic book version if I was going to write one. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. All the elements were there. If they dug up those bones, saw it was a mixture of cow and human, probably heard of those bandits, I can easily see how that turned into a legend. Probably to try and warn people about bandits being on the roads or something like that, right? That's what we find a lot of these folktales is like, don't go down that road. Bad thing happened there. You know, don't go into that creepy old building. Somebody was murdered there. It was protect us from the dark. You know, and that's what this story was. So the tale of this bench leg sparked your lifelong interest in the paranormal. And now you've turned it into a career. I'm curious. What was the, uh, what was the first local legend outside of your hometown? Like the first place that drew you away to go in search of more of these small town mysteries. What started it all for us was the uh, the the Devil's Chair in Casadega, which is this place you're supposed to go visit. Casadega is an amazing town anyway in Florida. There's a reason Tom Petty wrote a song about it. It's where the Twilight Zone meets Mayberry. The town was founded by psychics. It was, uh, this guy was drawn there by his spirit guide who told him to build this town and uh, invite only psychics there. And he did. But there's this legendary chair there in the cemetery. And if you go there and sit at this chair at midnight, the devil himself will come for you. Now, if you do go there at midnight, you will be visited by a dark presence. That dark presence is called the police because it is private property, and it is closed after sunset because so many people go there to do this legend tripping. But you do the research on it and you find out, okay, the devil didn't build the chair. It's a morning chair. They were common in the 1800s, uh, especially in Florida, because it's hot and we want to have a chair to go visit your family. And you, you, you build this little brick chair. I'm noticing a trend here, Mark, and it's that you seem to get to the bottom of these local legends and research where they originated from. 
I want to know if there's one that was the most surprising to you, you know, as you peeled back the layers and figured out where it came from. Yeah, uh, there was one called Mini Lights, and it was in Tampa Bay. And if you said Mini Lights three times, strange little lights would come and chase you. And if they touched you, it would singe your flesh, but not, you know, do anything terrible. And I started asking people, and on the north side of town, people would be like, oh, it's, you know, you say it three times, these little lights will chase you. But on the south side of town, it turned into a completely different version of the legend. First off, it was very much a, don't go messing with mini lights. You know, mini lights will get you. And then you find out, oh, her name's not mini lights. It's mini lightning. And she's the voodoo queen of St. Petersburg. And she summons the lightning. And that's why we have so much thunderstorms. And and she hates Marie Laveau in New Orleans. So she sends all the hurricanes to New Orleans. That's why they steer away from Tampa Bay. And it's like, one of the many legends of why storms dodge Tampa Bay, but it was, it was cool. And I'm like, all right, that's neat. But then there was a dark side to it. She will send her gator boys to steal your children. She'll send her gator boys to steal your children. So she has little gator men that will come out and steal your children. They'll come out of the alligators in the sewers. Ah, okay. So now it's this other, what a layered story. Where does that come from? So we start digging I thought, you know, mini light sounds an awful lot like Mennonite. And there was a strong Mennonite community, particularly in Gibsonton, you know, across the bay, which became the circus town. And I'm like, hmm, maybe. And I read about a Mennonite boarding house that burned down that had circus folk in it. Well, maybe they had alligator skin or something. Maybe that's where this legend comes from. And it just migrated across the bay, you know, like we were thinking. But really couldn't figure it out. We sadly had a due date. So we went to press with the various versions saying, hey, if anybody has an idea, we'd love to hear it. And then we were working on our next book and I was in the St. Pete Museum of History. I was in their archives and I was looking up something else on a completely different story. And the answer literally fell in my lap on many lights. I opened a book, I was looking for other photos and this fan fell out into my lap. You know, one of those fans you hold to cool yourself off at a tourist attraction in the 1930s. And the fan was for an alligator farm in St. Petersburg that is no longer there because alligator farms were big tourist attractions in Florida, early days. And St. Pete had one. And one of the things on it was two small African-American children being chased by alligators. And it said gator bait. And then it all fell into place. The real history is so much darker. Wow, that is truly reprehensible. This alligator farm would kidnap children from the South Side and put them in to entertain tourists to be chased by alligators. They actually did that. And so beware of many lights. The Gator Boys will steal your children. It's beware of the men with lights. The Gator Boys, they'll steal your children. And that and that really happened. It really happened. And then so 1930s, this was still going on. And that's, you know, until they shut down sometime in the early 40s. It's terrible. And sometimes these, like I said, sometimes these legends, the, the truth is so much worse. Yeah, that is extremely dark. That was so terrible. And now the city of St. Pete Museum of History has a display of that because we discovered it. And yeah, and, and you wonder how many more are out there like that, little things like that, that somebody just needs to connect the dots on. And it, it goes back to folklore. Don't go in the dark forest. You know, there's wolves, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. You know, it's the same, same stuff. It's just, this is a modern version of that. But you can see how it's important to investigate and recognize where stories like this come from. Because without that kind of context, for all anyone knew, it was just a silly story. But the reality is so much more dark. 
really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share some of your stories with us and our listeners. Hopefully, we'll hear from you again. I'm happy to jump back on anytime. Now, dear listeners, we're going to take a break, but next hour we have some exciting sightings and paranormal news with another caller who claims that their dentist's office is haunted by a large spectral. Hey, that was wild. That Mark dude actually had some really compelling stuff. Yeah, I've heard that show before. It can sometimes be a bit of a mixed bag. There's a fair amount of your standard tinfoil hat type stuff, but then sometimes you get these people like Mark who really know their stuff and they give these genuinely interesting and thought-provoking things to share. Yeah, I mean, like that mini-light story. That is, it's devastating, right? But it's also really important. It's really, really interesting when we start to hear these stories and get back to the origins of them to see how local legends start. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't even think twice about that. Right. But it has this dark and this real specific historical significance. Yeah. And to be so localized, too. Like, I've never heard of many lights until just now. Yeah, me either. It's it's interesting how many small urban legends there are, I think. Yeah, but a lot of them follow similar structures or have these similar purposes, too. They continue to fall into. There's a phenomenon, uh, migratory legends, right? Same-ish story, but with different names and locations. Exactly. That's it. Migratory legends are like the basic plot and the structure is identical, but then they turn up in these different regions with different regional variations with things like place names or topographical details that have been altered to fit that particular area. Right. Like a lot of cautionary tale stuff. Yeah. You ready? What? We're here. That wasn't 15 hours. I lied. Why? Why Why did you lie about that? Come on, you've done photography before. Low-light conditions suck. It would be a nightmare for what we want to do. We're just going to do it and yeah, fix it in post. I, I get that. Like, I get that. But why did you Why did you lie to me about it? I wanted you to be invested. I really don't understand you sometimes. I don't understand you and your— At least our, I tell the truth. Holy smokes. This is a big—we need to have a bigger discussion at some point. But Perry, Perry. On, this way, the grave's not too far. It's in section P. And according to the GPS, we parked pretty darn close to that. Yeah, I mean, it's a Ouija board tombstone, right? Which should be pretty easy to spot. Yeah, yeah it should be. It's a pretty big graveyard, though, and we might need... Ooh. Ah, God! <laughs> what, are you, what are you guys doing in a graveyard? It's an odd place to just hang out. What are you doing talking to two people hanging out in a graveyard? Well, I like all people, the living and the dead, but I'm here to do research for my ghost tours. Ah, that's interesting. We're doing research for a podcast on legend tripping. Well, I would love to talk to you about it if you guys have an interest. Yeah. My name is Paul Prater. I am a mentalist. I am an attorney. I'm an author. I'm a creator. I'm a ghost tour guide. Usually when people say, what do you do? My answer is fun. That's what I do is have fun. (laughs) So that's awesome. And that's also pretty wide ranging. How do you do all of that as a career? Like, what does that look like? I have kind of a few different branches of the mentalism that I do. The first one is corporate work. And obviously for that, you have to be conscious of what you're putting out there. I have to talk to my clients and make sure that they're okay with certain presentational angles. But for that, I typically just play up more of the attorney side of me and I weave that into the shows because as corporations are hiring me, I'm relating to them professional to professional. Now, on the other side, I also do things like bizarre magic, which I'll, I'll explain. Um, it's taking darker elements, sometimes having to do with the occult, sometimes having to do with just ghost stories or just the creepiness in general and putting a story and a presentation to that. Right. So bizarre magic from your perspective, 
probably utilizes a lot of the same mechanical methods as traditional magic, but has a different presentational frame? Yes. Even my shows, my corporate shows, largely use the same methods and have the same basic structures. The framework's different. Obviously, you don't use things like tarot cards or creepy image cards or what have you, you know, you just, you just change that, but I always ask my corporate clients too, what their level of comfort is. Every, you know, every corporation has a different culture. Some are very straight laced and some say, no, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I also ask them, do I need to be G, PG or R? And I've had some say you can be X. I'm like, I don't do those kind of shows, but <laughs> 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 or I will if the price is right. But anyway, uh, right. exactly. <laughs> No, I don't, I don't tend to do anything aside from maybe PG-13 at worst, but you know, I, I clarify that with clients too, and that helps me decide what I'm going to present, obviously, is what the client wants if they're paying. Now, if it's my show, I do what I want, and people are paying to come see me, and that's a whole different thing. All of my performances that I do, that I put on, are absolutely in the bizarre magic realm, but they're still fun. There's still humor in them. It's very audience-engaged. Members participate in every routine I do, literally every one. The very first full stage show I presented was a mix of magic and sideshow. So yeah, in that show, I would uh, lift an anvil with my teeth and swing it around. I would do the human blockhead, hammering the nail into the nose. I did bed of nails, uh, built my own and uh, lay on that, have someone stand on me. And then I also did hand an animal trap, which is another one of those old sideshow bits. And I did it partially just because, I mean, it interests me. I thought it was it was fascinating. You know, as, as a kid, I, re, I still remember, it was crazy. There was an empty field, and they set up a canvas old-style circus. And there were carnies, and Tiny Tim played tiptoe through the tulips. It was so weird. It just left a really strong impression on me. And uh, I wanted to learn how those people did those things. Let's talk about the ghost tours. I want to talk about the mindset of somebody that decides to go to a ghost tour. So in folklore, there's this concept called legend tripping, which is, you know, you've heard about interesting stories or phenomena, and almost as a rite of passage, you decide to go participate in it, maybe because somebody dared you. You know, those things that we used to do in high school, somebody would say, there's an abandoned asylum on this hill, and if anybody goes in at 3 a.m. on a, the third Tuesday of the month, they're going to die. They, they never right. return, and then everybody turns it into like a dare type of thing. I, I think that haunted tours kind of serve that function for grown adults in a lot of ways, is you get to still participate in, in some of those things. So, as, as you've seen the types of people that come on these year after year, are, are there any things that they've shared with you about what they're hoping to see or what they, they want to experience with other people or just with the environment? Yeah, it's pretty clear there's basically two groups that come on the tours. You have the ghost people who are the believers who hope to see something, and you have the people who are there just like, yeah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We understand this is all just in good fun. Yeah. And so I specifically cater to both of those groups on the tour. It's built that way. So we make it fun right off the bat. I cater to them. And I say that right at the beginning, I'm an attorney. I don't say that for the purpose of getting business, though. You know, look me up if you need a good lawyer. I say that because it means I'm a skeptic and it means I dug in and learned the history behind these stories. And I'm going to share that history with you tonight. This is not made up. These are the true stories. This is the real history. So what is a typical ghost tour like? How do you, like, what's the balance between ghost stories versus history? How does it all come together? I'll, I'll start by saying I started the tours because a friend of mine, Ed Underwood, had started tours in Jonesboro, ghost tours in Jonesboro. And he had asked me to take over. This was 15 years ago. And I told him I just had no interest. He was a performer as well. That's how we met. 
And he, he pretty much talked me into it, and I loved it. The way it started, actually, and I tell this story on the tour, is one of the stops. We were sitting at this bar, me and the owner, and he looks up at this window and goes, you know, people say they see a ghost up there. And it hit me, if there's one story, there have to be more stories. There's not just one ghost. So I went to the History Commission, and they were super helpful. And the historian there already had an interest in this, so he had ghost stories for me already. He had histories for me. He had photos for me. So he was really, really helpful. One of my favorite stories, they're not all ghost stories. So, and to, and to answer that question about the, the split, it's much more history than it is ghost stories. Uh, one of the reviews I got this year said, you know, it's still a five-star review. So I'm happy. He goes, the stories might not be as creepy as you want, but I sure learned a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, the history component is very big. And I say at the beginning, we're going to talk about the history, but you can't talk about the history without talking about the ghost because those stories are wrapped up in history. They're part of it. I think, though, maybe my favorite story on the tour is the one I end with, and I don't want to give too much of it away. It's a place called Four Quarter, and it's very well written about. I mean, any listener could actually Google Four Quarter Bar and Haunted in Arkansas, and they're going to find the stories. The part I'm not going to give away, but I'll hint at, is I tear apart that story, and people are like, oh, man, really? That doesn't hold water? But then I tell them about all of the unexplainable stuff that's happened there, and I am a skeptic, and I've experienced unexplainable stuff in that building. And one of the best stories about it is one of the bartenders was there at 10 o'clock in the morning. He was just putting in a water heater. They weren't even open yet. And he heard this crash and he went out to the bar and the bar top, the very top of it's probably 12 foot high. And there's a pot still behind beer cans. And that pot still is at the front edge of the bar in the ice bin. So it didn't just fall. It flew forward and it didn't disturb any of the beer cans. And I tell this story and people are like, wow, that's weird. And the best part of it is they have a video camera pointing down the bar and the bar owner pulled the video and I show that to everyone on the tour. It is totally unexplainable. So that's my favorite story because I tell the story that everyone knows, then tear it apart and then go, but something's going on here. I don't know what. And uh, I really love that because again, that plays to both the believers and the non-believers, you know? I love that. Have you gone on the uh, the haunted tour like at the Crescent Hotel or any of the any other ones I have. what do you what do you experience as somebody who has done these yourself and then goes on other ones um what what's the compare and contrast in your mind the biggest one is just the 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 guide i mean you're a personality and you're a storyteller if you if you're not a good storyteller then the tour just isn't that great you know yeah. <laughs> and that's that's part of the fun to me with this. That is the illusion part. If there is one on the tour is that I'm, I'm having people look at these buildings and I have a flip book of what they looked like in the past. So I'm really trying to get people to be present in a place and time and be able to envision what it was like. Now in the Crescent, for instance, it's a little bit easier because it looks like what it always looked like, you know? So yeah, it's a creepy old Victorian hotel. So you're present in that place and time automatically. But um, also know the guy who started those and he's a theater guy he always has theatrical people or theater people. And that to me is the key to having a good ghost tour. As you think about just the topic of legend, is there a favorite legend or urban legend that really resonated with you? There is, but it's something more recent and I'll explain why. Came about through the ghost tours when I was doing the research for them because I did, I mean, I wrote a book too. I've got a Haunted Argenta book that has all the stories, but I did my research, you know, through archives and old newspapers And I found this legend that there was a werewolf in North Little Rock, not far from where we do the ghost tours. Now, 
when I read more about it and found what I could, people claimed on multiple occasions to see this shaggy, hairy man walking, you know, kind of like wolf-like down into the swamps. There used to be swamps at the at the base of uh, Park Hill area of North Little Rock. And they would tell their kids not to go down there because the werewolf might get them. But in reality, I think it's probably because the swamps are inherently dangerous. So by using the werewolf story, you keep the kids out of danger. But where it got super interesting to me is I found another story where they said the werewolf had murdered someone. And I started going down this path and I found within a period of about 15 years, three people were murdered in the same way and their bodies dumped at almost the same location. And I took that to the history commission and said, have you guys ever found this or recognized this? And the answer was no. We think you probably found a serial killer. Wow. And that was really exciting that that tied in that the werewolf story is what set me down that path. And, uh, totally coincidentally, one of my best friends, I was talking to him about this, you know, about the book while I was writing it and was telling him this story. And I said, yeah, well, this, the first girl that was killed was named Florence Shilkut. And he went, that's, that's my family because that's my mom's side of the family. Oh, that is wild. And, uh, yeah, I loved that. I loved the whole story. First of all, about just the werewolf and trying to keep the kids out of the swamps. But then when it tied into the murders and I found the three different murders and, uh, has there been any, any follow-up after that? I wrote it all up in the book is the werewolf of Cherry Hill and wrote about those murders, but they were so long ago. I don't really know, you know, how they would tie anybody for sure. It was very hard to find much information about them aside from, you know, the, the newspapers back then loved to report like, oh, the neck was cut open and the body was ravaged or whatever. But as far as follow-up, arrest, or anyone tried, they didn't, they didn't write about that. It wasn't sensationalist. So it's often hard to find the follow-ups to stories, like what happened at the end after this horrible thing. All right. So this is a call out to anybody that wants to start the next true crime podcast. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah, the next Bear Brook. The werewolf of Cherry Hill. Somebody should should do a series on that and investigate it. Yeah, I've got the start of it. <laughs> yeah. So you really dug up the root of this legend. And I'm always fascinated how these stories change as they get told. And also just storytelling in general, like oral tradition is fascinating. I got to speak once to someone who's a professional storyteller. We didn't get to talk shop much, but that's pretty close to what you're doing, right? Like there, there's a lot of ties to oral tradition. Do you sort of think of your work that way? Oh yeah, I love it. And I think part of that is growing up, my dad's family lived in a place called Greasy Creek, Kentucky. And you know, you didn't really have good TV signal. There was really nothing to do out there. We would sit on the front porch and listen to the old folks tell stories. And uh, I, I think that really just that hit me. That was awesome. That was so foreign. You know, this was the 80s, but yet they still had an outhouse and you'd have to draw water out of the well to take a bath. You know, it was so primitive and weird and I loved it. But the storytelling was a big part of that. Stories are hugely important. I think that's our most primitive form of entertainment and it's still a valid form of entertainment even today. And that's awesome. With all of our technology, nothing can replace a good story. Yeah. And one of the things that we're really enjoying seeing is how people take that legacy of storytelling and then apply technology to that or let technology transform that into new patterns of storytelling. Yeah. It's all the same stuff, just different, a different way of getting the stories out. Yeah. And, and at scale, internet scale. Yeah. Wow. Look at the time. Well, fellas, I've had a good time talking, but I have another engagement I have to go to. There are folks are waiting for a tour. So come out and see me sometime if you can make it. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks for chatting with us. That was really cool. Yeah, thanks. You bet. That was super cool. He's 
Paul's a really cool guy. Yeah, right? And he had some wicked, fascinating stories. Like that urban legend ultimately turning up evidence of a serial killer. I know, right? That's super, super wild. I think it's really interesting to see how much history dovetails into these ghost tours. It's a mini legend trip in and of itself. It's like this way of engaging with the past of a place. Hey, Ouija board. Excellent. That's the grave. I'm going to get the tripod set up, and I got a really, really, really big planchette that I'm going to try to set up to. Awesome. Hey, listeners, we wanted to take a second to tell you about a podcast that we think you'll like. It's called Guide to the Unknown. Guide to the Unknown is a podcast about horror movies and the paranormal. Every week, siblings Kristen Anderson and Will Rogers discuss pop culture and the unexplainable. Will comes at things from the perspective of a celebratory skeptic, whereas Kristen comes at it a little bit more like a believer. Favorite episodes include a look at haunted amusement parks, listener stories, cursed thrift store purchases, and breakdowns of tons of horror video games and movies. Everything from Silent Hill to classic slashers and their remakes. New episodes come out every Friday on all major podcast apps, and there's a weekly video version of the show on YouTube. You can follow them on social media at GTTUPod and find them at youtube.com slash GTTUPod. Guide to the Unknown. Go check it out. We think you'll like it. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Four shots came out great, these ones. Yeah, th those were probably good. Yeah, I think once we put them through a little bit of post-processing and make them look even spookier, they're going to be pretty awesome. Man, I wish I brought Digby. He loves walking around cemeteries. Like, I got him one of those little cat harnesses, and weirdly, he loves it. No. The little guy's great on walks. We seem to attract enough attention from interesting strangers without you walking around with a raccoon on a leash. I think maybe it's because I have the vibe of someone who would do that. Maybe. No, I'm not complaining. Meeting Paul was great. Oh, that reminds me. There was somebody that I wanted to interview for the podcast. Oh? Yeah, I mean, I, th I thought maybe we could do it while we're on the road. With what equipment? I didn't bring anything. You've not seen. You've not noticed. The van is rigged for sound. Excuse me? Yeah, this whole thing is mic'd up all over with 
primo mics. What, dude, where did you, f I'm a little bit concerned about the origins of this van. Where did you find this? Craigslist, and don't ask about the origins. The less you know, the better. Sounds right. Anyways, while I was researching folklore programs, I found this one at George Mason University, and I met a student there named Betty Aquino. And so, <clears throat> and so I wanted to reach out to her and interview her for this show. She recently won an award from the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research for documenting an urban legend as it literally unfolded around her. But right now, I want to talk to her about some of the ghost tours that she's run, because she's very into that as well. And she also has this really cool story about the bunny man. So why are you why are you like full podcast mode all of a sudden? You're being weird. The the mics. Remember, there's mics everywhere in this. And so I figure we record. Oh, you're, oh, you're already rolling. Yeah. We're rolling while we're rolling. That's the way that the van works. I, okay. That's really dumb. It's not dumb. It's productivity. <laughs> that, yeah. But saying that is dumb the way that it sounds dumb. Shut up. I'm calling her now. Hello. Hey, Hey Betty. It's Perry and Mason and Mason. Oh, cool. Uh, and this is the digital folklore podcast is now a good time. Excellent. Why don't we give you a really clean introduction and get your name, who you are, and then we'll dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Betty Aquino. I am a graduate student in the George Mason University Folklore Program, which is in Fairfax, Virginia. Next semester, I will be wrapping up the thesis, uh, but we've been very busy at Mason coming out of a pandemic and trying to get back into our community. We hosted our very first Legends and Lore walking tour of campus. Uh, we've done a lot of great online and in-person events to try and welcome more people to our folklore community, let them know that we have folklore classes at Mason, and you can even uh, get a degree in folklore at Mason. And we're really connected with the larger community here in D.C. as well. For you, what makes folklore significant and what was your journey into it? My journey into folklore was really accidental. I actually have an undergraduate degree in theater and arts management. Uh, I spent a number of years doing theater in Michigan and uh, kind of live entertainment. So I did some work with the Michigan Shakespeare Festival. I was really involved in a haunted house attraction while I was up there as well. And then from there, I kind of transitioned into marketing because I needed something that was a little more nine to five. I worked from home pre-pandemic. And I remember I would just put the TV on in the background while I worked, you know, just to have some white noise. And I just happened to look up one day and they were interviewing a folklorist. I didn't know that that could be your title. So I went down this, you know, Google search hole of, okay, folklorist, what do I do? How do I do that? And I, lo and behold, live 10 minutes from George Mason University. Um, however, ironically, it was during like peak pandemic. Everybody was online. So I was so close yet so far away from the program. So I uh, I did some sent some emails to the program. Uh, I looked online and I saw what their alumni were doing and decided, you know, I think this could be a really good for me. So I was able to apply from there. I was accepted. I quit my job wow. and started uh, the program in January of 2021. So I'm still pretty new to this program. Pretty new to folklore, but it feels like the right place to be for me. Yeah. So when you talk about the interdisciplinary nature of folklore, which intersections do you like to explore? Yeah. So I would definitely argue that my background in theater influences a lot of how I look at folklore. I definitely have a 
uh, an interest in performance and also understanding that performance is not merely putting on a character to perform. It's how we perform in different roles, in different folk groups, how we perform online, you know, how we perform in these different spaces. While I'm not someone who dabbles in a lot of material culture, I think I have an interest for the way we use objects as uh, I mostly worked in props. So I did a lot of design work with props, and it was something that I really put a lot of work into. And it was something that I felt was really important to give actors objects that they could create kind of emotional connections to. And that's something that we do as people in our everyday lives. We have like a favorite coffee cup, a favorite blanket, a favorite pair of sneakers that we wear. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there with material culture, with folk art that is just really resonates with me when I see it. And maybe I'll one day be able to kind of explore those two worlds uh, together a little bit more. And I hope to uh, one day as well. But right now, I'm mostly working on a lot of narrative things as a graduate student. You mentioned, and I've seen this too, as I follow the, the GMU social media, kind of the love for all things contemporary legend um, to the point where you're also leading or working on haunted tours and doing legend trips and all of that kind of stuff. Can you talk about what the tour experience is like and what you're hoping to get out of that? What, what are you wanting to impart? What's the experience like? Yeah, absolutely. So with our, our Legends and Lore Tour, um, to my knowledge, there's a couple of other universities out there that kind of have their folklore departments kind of do something very similar. And I wanted to set up a Legends and Lore Tour. I wanted to engage a larger part of our university community that might not know who we are, but have an interest in folklore and maybe from that kind of supernatural angle. We did one last spring to the Bunny Man Bridge, and it was it was great fun but it was a smaller group. This semester, we actually visited the Exorcist Stairs in D.C. and a couple of other haunted spots in D.C. So kind of talking about belief and curses and, you know, how that all kind of ties together with the supernatural. Uh, we've also done some hiking with our Outdoor Adventures program here as well, visiting a spot that is supposedly home to a vanishing hitchhiker ghost. Um, so really just kind of not only, you know, being interdisciplinary as you know, folklore, but being kind of interdisciplinary within our university as well. Not only was it about, you know, urban legends and campus legends, but also looking at the rituals and traditions of a college campus. And college campuses are just rife with these kinds of things. Before we get too lost in the weeds, I would love to have you talk about the bunny man, because I think that that'd be fun to hear your perspective on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I uh, I grew up between Virginia and Michigan. So I've got a lot of a lot of places I call home between these two states. And really, I think the first big contemporary legend that I remember hearing as a kid was the Bunny Man. The version that I heard was that there was an old mental institution in Northern Virginia somewhere. They didn't provide an exact location, and there was some. Some schools being built in the area, some neighborhoods being built up in the area, and the people coming in decided, you know, we don't want to live near this. We don't feel safe here. So they decided that they were going to uh, move all of the inhabitants of the mental institution elsewhere. One of the last buses to leave the institution to, you know, go wherever else, and they don't, they never say like where it's going to, um, the bus crashed and three men escaped. You know, weeks and weeks and weeks go by and 
in one week, they end up finding one guy and he's been killed. And it kind of looks like maybe he's been attacked by something. The next week, they end up finding the other guy. Again, it's the same situation. He looks like he's been attacked by something, maybe bitten. So they realize, okay, now we're only missing one. And again, weeks go by and they kind of think, okay, maybe this guy has just succumbed to the elements at this point. You know, it's not our problem anymore. A year later, they start to find all of these bunny carcasses in this area near a train overpass. So they keep finding all these bunny carcasses that look like they've been eaten by something. And they don't know what it is. Maybe it's a bear. Maybe it's some sort of mountain lion. They don't know what it is, but they keep finding all of these carcasses. And around Halloween that year, a bunch of teenagers went out to that bridge because they're like, you know what? It's that escaped patient from the mental asylum. That's the guy who's eating all of the bunnies. You know, rumors that he lives out here. And they go out and search for the this bunny man, as he's known. And those teenagers who went out searching November 1st, they're all found dead at Bunnyman Bridge. A pretty interesting urban legend, you know, legend for teenagers for a long time. And um, actually, a Fairfax County librarian, he did this really great deep dive into the possibilities of how, you know, Bunnyman came to be. He found a bunch of different news stories, cited like, okay, so here's a murder from like, 1896. And he kind of puzzled pieced all of these different stories together that might have created the tapestry that's known as the Bunny Man. I love that. So um, from a folklorist perspective, when you encounter things like ghost stories or urban legends, how do you maybe disengage your uh, a certain part of your personality where you may want to go into debunking mode and just appreciate the, the piece of lore for what it is? How do you, how do you balance that? I know that there are some things where I would want to jump in and go, well, you know, it is the origin of that is this, um, but that's not really the point, right? So that, I think it's an interesting question to ask. And I think as a folklorist, there's been a number of times where I've kind of like ruined my own favorite ghost stories, but it's important to contextualize these things, uh, especially if we understand that the legend might be rooted in some kind of harmful tropes. Uh, or being used uh, to create a cultural other. Mm. Um, I think there are plenty of fun ghost stories out there that aren't is essentially harmful. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of our a lot of our ghost stories and a lot of our contemporary legends are kind of rooted in these isms. You know, these racism, um, you know, sexism, transphobia, things of that nature. I think you know, without this curiosity, without this enjoyment of these legends. We wouldn't have folklorists. We wouldn't have people interested in studying the discipline. And once that person gets into the discipline and they can understand how to contextualize it, you know, my hope would be that they continue with it and continue to understand that while this legend was something that might have like scared me and like a legend that I told constantly as a kid or as an adult um, because I thought it was so creepy, understanding that there is sometimes a context there that, you know, can be harmful to other people. Well, here you are. Yeah, thanks, man. This was fun. See, I knew it would be, even though you were a little bit cranky at the Never beginning. wake me up at 4 a.m. again. But wasn't it worth it in the end? Perry, I mean, Perry, what time is it? Um, when? Right now. Uh, 1031. 1031 what? 
a.m.? Yeah, see, this whole thing did not need to start at four in the freaking morning. But you have to agree, it doesn't feel like a real adventure unless it's dark when you leave. Yeah, okay, fine. I'm going back to bed. What? Yeah, dude, I'm exhausted. Look at it this way. It's early enough that you can go crash out for a couple hours and then wake up and you've still got a big chunk of the day ahead. I'm not saying that it wasn't worth it, okay? It, it, was, fu it was fun. But I'm, I'm tired, okay? What are you going to go do? I've got an appointment to get the van painted and wrapped. It's like in an hour. What? Did, when did you make that appointment? It, last night, like right after I got the van. It's the only slot that they had open. You have the weirdest sense of timing of anybody I've ever met. Oh, thanks. Any, yeah, okay. Have a good one, Perry. Thanks for driving. Uh, no problem. Yeah. I don't know how bad Digby messed the place up before I was... Did he not... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Come on, come on. Pick up, 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 pick up. Hello? You've reached the voicemail box of Perry Carpenter. Leave me a message and oh, I'll get back to you. Oh, come on. Oh, oh. Hello? Hey, Mason, did you just call me? Yeah, Perry. Okay, don't yeah. freak out. Don't do anything. Keep driving normal. There is a person on the roof of your van. What? I can see them right now as you're driving away. There's a person on the roof of your van. And I know I know everything we just uh, said. I swear to God, they have a hook for a hand. Not again. Hang on. Did you, did you say again? Yeah, hang on. What? Oh my God! Dude! Oh! Problem solved. Dude! Close your blinds. People will be by soon. Thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. If you'd like to come hang out with us, check out our Discord server. We've got a link for you in the show notes. A special thanks to our voice actors this episode. The opening story was told by Jenna Rose Nethercott. Jenna Rose is an author, poet, folklorist, and associate producer and researcher for the highly acclaimed podcast Lore. Eric Gray was the voice of Art Chime on the radio. Eric is the host of the podcast Dumb People with Terrible Ideas, which is phenomenal. It's like if the movie trailer guy got a PhD in economics and then went to open mic night at the comedy store. It's great, and you can find it at ericexplains.com. Ruben Basalta was the voice of the Moon Man Dad Caller. Ruben is a voice actor who you can hire for your own projects. Find Ruben at tiktok.com forward slash at hike dot night. And thank you to our interview guests this episode. Mark Muncy is the best-selling author of Erie, Florida and other fantastic books on local legends and stories. Find more of Mark's work at erieflorida.com. Paul Prater is a professional entertainer for a wide variety of clients from small personal evenings to large corporate events. Find out more at paulprater.com. And Betty Aquino is a graduate student at George Mason University, which has an amazing folklore program. If you're interested in studying folklore, you should check out what they have to offer at gmu.edu. Also, if you like digital folklore, consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash digital folklore. Digital Folklore is a production of Eighth Layer Media and is distributed by Realm. Yeah, put me through to Carl. We've got a cleanup situation. Mason's house. Yeah, make it quick. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.